You're listening to a Radio Stockdale podcast. Podcasts that are inspiring, interactive, and feature various discussions of leadership, ethics, and law. Welcome to Philosophy at the Movies, a podcast where we discuss themes in the history of philosophy through the medium of films. I'm Alex Baker, and joining me as always... Sean Baker. And today's topic is a double feature of <laughs> both the 1954 film, The Seven Samurai, and the 1960 film, The Magnificent Seven. Yes. So, uh, and just so you know, when uh, The Seven Samurai was released, you know this, I'm sure, but our mm-hmm. audience needs to, uh, when it was released in the U.S., Guess what its title was? Yep. <laughs> the Magnificent Seven. Those who don't know. The se- uh, originally, there was the great Akira Kurosawa made this, the 1954 film The Seven Samurai. And it's the main plot is a poor village over here is a group of bandits planning on raiding their village. They've done this before. They, were, they, they see them. They want to raid. But they say, oh, there's nothing there yet. Wait till the next harvest comes, and then they're going to be ripe for the picking. So they overhear that, and they decide to go around getting hired help because all the law enforcement is just useless. And they say by the time they come there, they have already done their pillaging. Yeah, there's enforcement in this this period. And I guess this is is the late 1500s it's set in. Uh, The Shingoku period, I believe it was called, in Japan. And... It was one of those periods where there's little or no centralized government, certainly not even uh, localized government. So everybody was more or less on their own, and you had uh, traveling bands of bandits, and you also had traveling bands, as we see in the film, of um, basically out-of-work soldiers, uh, ronin, who were basically security for hire. And that's kind of the premise of the film. Yeah, so they decide with, they can't afford to pay them, but they said they basically give them room and board. They look for hired samurai to recruit them. And through the story, they the main guy they find is Kambe. And he's they, they see him do this honorable mission of this guy kidnaps this child. And he pretends to be a priest. He cuts off his hair and his top knot. If you remember yep. Harikari... The top knot for a samurai is a very important thing, and getting that cut off would almost be seen as disgrace. But he's not afraid to do that to save this kid. Yes. He cuts it off, kills the bad guy, rescues the child. They decide to try to persuade him to join. He eventually does, and he goes around trying to recruit people. He gets an old friend, and there's also this guy named Kikuchio who was watching him and who's very impressed by what he did. But Kikuchio is sort of all talk and no he's got nothing to show for it he's not as good as he thinks he is yeah so but eventually they get six but kikuchio just he's he's very persistent he yeah. won't let it go so they finally decide yeah. to have it's kind him of this starstruck along. young yeah who sees this very old wise and apparently fearless uh samurai and he just wants to be this guy right and he wants he actually asks him can you please take me in and uh be my uh uh, master, uh, train me in the ways of the samurai. At first, he doesn't want to do it, but he uh, 
he he he's reluctantly he does take mm-hmm. him in. Yes. Yeah. There's there's actually there's two. There's one young guy who's more enamored, but he doesn't isn't as show offy as Kikuchio. Yeah. He decides to join with Kanbei, and Kikuchio is a little bit proud. He gets angry. He gets drunk and says, "Why, you know, why are you so special?" Yeah. But eventually, they he gets these guys. There's seven of them, obviously, since the title, mm-hmm. and they head to the village, and to basically boil it down. They there's some initial hesitance from the village because, you know, they feel, are the samurai any better than the bandits? Yes. But they form this group. They start de- forming defenses, and Kanbei forms a battle plan. Yep. And sort of kind of just letting a few in in the cert- centralized area in the village at a time, taking them out. They also have to worry about these guns, these muskets. Yep. Uh, three, mu- three muskets. Three muskets. Right, right. Yep. And, and that's the story. Then you have... The 1960 film, The Magnificent Seven, and now that's the setting is near the U.S.-Mexico border. It's mm-hmm. a sm- Mexican village, and the group of bandits, uh, man, the, led by a guy named Calvero, mm-hmm. or we call Tuco, if you remember, it's Eli Wallach, so <laughs> you were thinking of Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, but and they have the same thing. They're going to come back later on, and this time they go, they cross the border into the U.S., and they get gunfighters. Yes. And the first guy they get, I forget, is Yul Brenner's character have a name? Don't think, I think he I does. Just, yeah. I think it's interesting because he was also in Westworld yeah. as the man in black. Yeah. So I'm pretty sure he's just the man in black in this one. But he's <laughs> that Kambay character. And he does the sort of same thing, recruiting all these other guys. Yes. And the Kiku Chio character, this one is played by Horst Buckholtz. Mm-hmm. He's a bit of the same young hothead, sort of pride and arrogant. And this, they have the same, it follows the same story as the original. And eventually at the end, four of the seven samurai, or the gun, four gunfighters, and the, lose yeah. their lives. Some of the villagers lose their lives, but they eventually push out the threats. And the very end, as the three survivors ride on, they, the villagers are now happy. In Seven Samurai, they're singing. They're singing this song, and the Yul Brenner and then Kikuchio. I mean, I don't Kambe mm-hmm. are saying the farmers won. They yeah. always do. Yeah, we lost. Yeah, and that's the thing. And you know, this is I've been wanting to do this for a while because, and I feel you can't talk about one film without, without talking the about other. the other yeah. because they're both. I mean, I would. I still believe that the original is better. Yes, but I love the Magnificent they're, they're Seven both too great. because it's the it's this great score and it's really just a great classic western. Yes, and it really shows the highlights of how the crossing between cultures of Eastern and Western. Because people will say, "Oh, Magnificent Seven, you're ripping off the samurai movie," but some people say, "Well, but wait a second, one of Kurosawa's biggest influences was John Ford. He liked a lot of it." So you're saying. It, even the critics in Japan were calling this a Western yeah. six years before the Magnificent Seven came out. <laughs> so you just always have this crossing of cultures of the samurai and the gunfighter. Yeah, and it, it's it's pretty apparent that uh, um, the attraction in both films uh, comes from the fact that there were uh, the, the two periods in history uh, are similar in the way that you described earlier, in, in that there's little or no... Uh, government or law enforcement in these areas and pe- uh, people in this case of vi- uh, in both cases villages farming villages are left more or less to fend for themselves and figure out how to do things and uh, in both cases you also have uh, to put it somewhat uh, uh, 
simplistically two groups that uh, wander the countryside and um, uh, present, uh, on the one hand, uh, a threat to more settled uh uh, communities like villages, like farming villages, but at the same time, the possibility for these more settled communities to defend themselves. And I think uh, uh, in in both cases, but I think more so in the Kurosawa film, um, they do a good job of, of conveying to us the very, very thin line that uh, exists between the so-called bandits and the so-called professional soldiers, the samurai, um, as we see in in uh, the buildup and the recruitment. I really like that part of the story here, where they spend a great deal of time in a nearby town trying to recruit these samurai. And they're very careful to find some that look to be um, uh, so, so bad off that they'd be grateful to get some food in return for their mm-hmm. service. Um, uh, the... Uh, the villagers don't trust the samurai. And they certainly don't trust the bandits. And that's because in their experience, there's very little difference between the two groups. And this is historically accurate during this time period. Um, Samurai, who were basically out of work, uh, took took advantage of the skills they had developed as warriors and often formed these basically raiding parties. And they would... Um, take these villages and take their food and take their women and so forth. So um, they had, uh, to speak in terms you talked about earlier, kind of fallen away from the ideal of the the warrior's protector, right? And went toward uh, uh, the the warrior is raider. And so the villagers are quite right to be very distrustful of these people. There's that great scene where... Um, uh, one of the samurai goes off on the villagers, right? Saying they're not grateful. They, they should be thankful for us and so forth and so on. And um, um, it's pointed out very clearly to him. And this is also in Seven Samurai too, that uh, um, the, the reputation is well-deserved. Yeah, that was yeah. Uh, Kiku, Kiku Chio. Yes. And I believe the scene is... He got samurai armor from a, I think, yes. or one of the villagers got it from a nearby village, bought it, and they're disgusted by this because you, they, you know, pillage this off of dead soldiers. It's yes. dishonorable. And then Kikuchio has this rant like, yeah, the farmers are terrible. They do, they, you know, they're weak, they're cowards, they do this, they do that. But who made them like this? Exactly. The samurai. And you're like, you're this, that thing, they're not much different. And that's the big reveal that Kikuchio is mm-hmm. a farmer. Yeah. So it's like you got I know I look up to you guys and I want to be part of you guys. You guys still were part of things that happened to me as a young child. I remember there's the scene when he's trying to save a child from a burning village that the villagers or the bandits are destroying. It's on the outside where they can't yes. really get to. Yes. And the child is now his parents are dead. And Kikuchio starts crying. He says this is the same thing that's happened, happened to, me. to me. Yes. And uh, and you see that a little bit with the Horst Buckholtz character in Magnificent yeah. Seven, but... It's not as well-developed. Yeah, and that's yeah. the thing, like, it, Mifune is one of the greatest act, yeah. actors from Japan, and Buckholtz, he's a fine actor. It's not a bad performance, but it's just, you can't compete. And yeah. is a much better character, and I think, than his American counterpart. Yeah, and there's a... And, 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 uh, 
that scene in Seven Samurai when uh, the samurai are essentially told off. Say, so what do you expect? What do you expect from these villagers? You treat them this way; they're going to respond that way, eye for an eye, so to speak. They simply they don't respond other than looking down, like they they, they, they can't they bear have no to. Defense. They have absolutely no defense. They know it's actually uh, correct, um, and. You know, maybe that's getting to the point of that the, the fam- famous last lines uh, that the uh, the farmers the farmers win, we always lose. Um, there there seems to be a little bit of a message here of um, a a that distrust is not going to go away, right? So even though we've served them well, um, we have to move on. They would prefer that we do move on because now that now that they've kind of established their defenses and um, are somewhat secure, we become a magnet for trouble from others like us. So yeah. in that sense, we, we, we because we're always moving on and we're not settled and we do not have families. That's one thing I like between the two films, by the way, the younger guy in Magnificent Seven stays behind with the girl he's fallen yeah. in love with. You don't have that happy ending in Seven no, Samurai. She looks at him, but then she walks away. Yeah. Because it's particularly more so in the Magnif- uh, Seven Samurai because, like you said, the villagers, once it's over, they're happy. They're yeah. singing songs. They, they, they've they achieved tranquility. They don't have to worry about bandits anymore. But you notice they don't have this tearful farewell or yeah. going away party for the seven samurai. Even though they have those graves with the bodies, even though they have the bodies of the fallen villagers as well, yeah. they don't. You feel like they should be grateful, like they saved their lives. But they they just want them to, like I said, move on. And yeah. even in Magnificent Seven, the old man in the village, he was the one who also in both movies sort of inspires them to do this to get yes. help. Yes, he thanks them, but he. That's pretty he much says it's, it. it's you have to move on now. Yeah, you, you've served your purpose. You need to move on, and like I said, I think I think that is trying to portray to us the the level of mistrust that uh, societies like this, where there's little little or no central government, little or no, as it were, oversight or accountability for um, armed and skilled warriors uh, uh, be, becoming bandits. Right, you don't want to take on the risk of having them hang around <laughs> after they've served their purpose. Um, probably less likely because these guys come to trust to some extent, right? You, you don't think they will turn on you necessarily, although they might. Yeah, um, but they are going to be magnets for other bandits that uh, are just looking for a fight, right? Or uh, perhaps seeking revenge for. Uh, uh, the killing that had gone on just previously. And the farmers aren't stupid. They realize this. And they don't want to live in a uh, state of constant turmoil and conflict. So they send them on. All right. And uh, I think the samurai recognize this. Say, this is, this is the way we have to live. It's not a glorious life. And it's probably going to be a somewhat short life. Uh, I think Kambe kind of realizes that um, being the old enough to be the old man that has lived through this kind of lifestyle. Um, it's, that's unusual. That's unusual. The warriors in the, these kinds of uh, situations usually live short, violent lives. And I think he recognizes that a little bit sad about it. 
Yeah, because there is, when you think, you almost want to say, like, this, the villagers should be a little bit more grateful because not only are they, did they save them, they took this job on with basically no pay. All they're getting is room and board with meager rations. Yeah. And not only that, they for, ha, over half of them lost their lives. And, you, and they also, you, even in the beginning, like, they don't greet them when they first come in. They're all wary. And even later on, it's more, more so shown in Magnificent Seven, but they even hide the women because they think they're going to rape them. So yes. it's constant distrust, and you're thinking, well, these people are putting their line on the, a lot on the line for you for little in return. Yes. You should be, and at the end, they did rescue you, so you, you almost you want to say, like, you, you should say, throw them that ticker tape yes, parade. Yes, you should throw them the parade, and you should ask them to stay and kind of be your constabulary, but... They don't. They still don't trust them. And, and what you have to remember is this is after, uh, 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 in some, in, in in the case of Japanese history, a long period of time of this kind of internecine warfare. So you have to imagine: would villagers in a situation like that, where maybe this had been going on for two or three generations, ever come to trust samurai? Right. And, and, and they're not, they're not naive about that. And they, and they're also not naive when they're uh, offering these guys food. They know how desperate they are for food. They know that they will take what they can get. And if it requires working simply to be fed so far, so good. But once they've, once they've served their purpose, dare we let them hang around? We know what these guys tend to do. Once again, that makes more sense in the context of uh, uh, decades, sometimes yeah. even nearly and, two two centuries of that kind of behavior being rampant. And it even crosses over into the Magnificent Seven, because you see the Horst Buckholtz character, which is the equivalent to Kikuchio. He's he's enamored with the life because he's they've gotten to some battles, they've had some victories, he's taken out a few, and he's talking about how glamorous and romantic it is. Yeah. But all the others who are older than him talk about, yeah, well, we can't sit, we don't have any roots, we don't have family, we don't have children. Yeah. Sure, we might know some good places in town to play poker or get a drink, or yeah, people might not want to mess with us, but it's a very isolated, lonely life. It isn't as romantic as yeah. you think. It's kind of a it's kind of a strange. A hybrid between out-and-out ostracism and uh, mercenary existence. They're not simply mercenaries, but they're pretty close. And they will be called in to serve only when uh, a village uh, feels it necessary to take, uh, uh, to use what they recognize as dangerous men. And they never quite get over that fact that the farmers do. They never quite get over the fact that they're dangerous. And Kambe recognizes that. He, and he also sees that it is a well-deserved uh, judgment. And uh, that's why he says we always lose and the farmers win. The farmers, yeah, they're vulnerable, but they have a lot more going on for them in terms of fulfilled human life than mm-hmm. these warriors do. They basically are just professional warriors, and they don't have anything else. Yeah, because in this Magnificent Seven, the uh, Charlie Brunson character... Sorry, I have to do my Charlie Bronson impression. Do it one more time. Charlie Brunson. <laughs> Death wish. <laughs> I wish I was dead. Hey, you. Okay. Yeah, okay. Stop. But... Uh, <laughs> 
the Charles, Bron- Charles Bronson character, like these kids are particularly taking a shine to him, which, sorry, those kids were very annoying and they get him killed at the end. So I really hated them. <laughs> but anyway, they're after, because what doesn't happen in the, in the seventh samurai, what happens in Minister seven is the villagers betray them because they're too afraid. Yes. And yes, children call them cowards for doing that. But instead of Bronson agreeing with them, he slaps them. And then he says, no, they're braver than I am because I'm afraid to, you know, have a family, take a risk on working this land, having all these things that could possibly happen to me. They're braver than me, and you should be thankful to them. Yes. And even at the end, when the kids get Charles Bronson killed, um, (laughs) the the villagers are fighting. Now they've taken back. They're fighting, helping the seven uh, gunfighters. And they say, look, there's your, look how brave they are. They're not the cowards you think they are. Yeah, yeah. And uh, uh, the uh, I, I do like that interaction between the, in both films between the kids and, and the warriors, um, because you're right there there is that that element of glamour that, that they have in the eyes of the kids because the kids are inexperienced, and uh, Bronson's point I think is very well taken. He says you know if you if you think I'm brave because as well-armed as I am, I'm fighting these other guys that are well-armed and trying to uh, take your village and take your food and take your women and so forth, right? Um, how much more braver are your parents? They're unarmed. They're always vulnerable. And they're willing to risk uh, ticking us off by uh, betraying us on the one hand, but also willing to take on the risk of... Uh, uh, taking on the role of protector after we leave, right? And they're looking out for your interests, putting themselves at risk. Because if the village is going to be raided by uh, yet another uh, a band of bandits, uh, they're probably not going to kill you guys. They will kill their parents. They're, they'll kill your parents. So shut up, kid. <laughs> you know? Yeah, he does a great job with that. It's it, it's interesting because you know this was a remake, and we say that particularly that time period in Japan, but you can also almost say that time period in the American West, particularly yeah. the Wild West of the 19th century. But you see this movie, and it was interesting. If you look at the box office, you you look at it overall, it's like, okay, it was a big hit, and this film, is Magnificent Seven, is considered a classic. But it didn't do that particularly well in America. What made it a box office hit was international. And you look at it, one of the places it sold very well, believe it or not, was Soviet Russia. So you see, and you see that story almost internationally just told different ways. I mean, this is, yeah. I always say, this is probably the first modern action movie. That's of this thing, we got to get these guys to come in and do this job. Mm-hmm. That's done thousands of times. I mean, it's been done thousands of times in every action movie. Yeah. And you, and if you think, particularly want to focus on Soviet Russia, it's not just, you know, if, even though he was dead by the time this movie came out, Joseph Stalin yes. was a huge Western fan. <laughs> like he, you see, if you if you're familiar with the movie Death of Stalin, they show scenes where they're having fun late at night. Everybody wants to go to bed, and then he says, "Anybody for a cowboy movie?" And you're like, "It's Joseph Stalin. I can't say no, otherwise <laughs> yeah. he'll kill me and my family." So yes. he would force people to watch all these old cowboy movies yes. with them. So that that idea of the cowboy or the samurai, because they you. you 
they almost come together because they've been translated and remade into different places yeah, so many a, times. It's, it certainly it has a cross-cultural significance, and I think that's... And I'm going to say this, and it sounds paradoxical or ironic, but it, it, every major society, be it Japan, be it uh, the United States, be it Russia... Um, all of them have gone through stages where it's kind of, to, to use the phrase from American history, the Wild West. And we recognize, I think, the fragility of civilization and its dependency on um, the use of power in order to maintain uh, the civilization, either from thre external threats or internal threats. And because there's that commonality in, in, in all cultures either have historical or uh, uh, mythical or legendary or literary records of that period in their history, it's a common thing that we see. And in Stalin's case, I mean, you could see it was very much more a, a thing of much more recent history um, during the uh, revolutionary uh, period in uh, Russia after the, the Tsar had been overthrown. There, there was a, definitely a period there that was kind of akin to the Wild West, and the, uh, the, 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 the Reds eventually won that power struggle. But, um, you know, Russia's, Russia's another gigantic country uh, uh, that's going to have areas that are less uh, civilized and more or less still in the Wild West, certainly at that time period and during the Tsarist period even. So there, it, it, it resonates, uh, I think, across cultures. And that's why the, the film was uh, even released in the United States, um, Seven Samurai, and also why it very, very quickly inspired mm -hmm. <laughs> The Magnificent Seven. And you mentioned something else I kind of like about the film, too, that um, is also a feature of a lot of other films now that have come out after this. And they spend a significant amount of time in this film showing us Kambe getting the band back together, so to speak, mm -hmm. to go do this mission. Yeah. And that's ever and, since then, that's been almost every action movie cliche ever. You know, well, like, yeah. And what's kind of funny about it is, as I was watching this, don't laugh. I use that phrase very advisedly. I thought of the Blues Brothers. You know, they, they're getting the band back together for a noble cause, right? And, and Kambay is kind of doing they've, this. They've had some sort of falling out. There's yes. always one guy who's out in the wilderness chopping wood. I mean, that was in Seven Samurai, but you didn't see it with Charlie Brunson <laughs> yes. in this one. But that's every, like, every, he's like, I left that past behind. I'm yes. living out in a cabin. I got a wife and a kid. I don't do that life anymore. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, well, of course, he gets called back. And he gets called back, and he, and he gets sucked back in. And he mm -hmm. still likes it, even though he's old experienced a bit burned out on this the, the adventure still uh, uh has that appeal and i think that's that's a really nice feature of this film yeah and i have to say even though the the go-to answer for greatest most influential film ever made is a film we discussed citizen kane i have to disagree and i think it's this because just how many movies how many action films how the action film genre itself owes it to this movie. Yeah, I agree with that, absolutely. I would say it's tremendously influential. And and another thing I think it's a first in, too, is uh, it's the first of the three-hour-long epics 
You know, mm-hmm. I think they also inspired that in or, or Kurosawa inspired that in Hollywood as well. You get to you get to kind of luxuriate in the characters in this film and you really get to know them. Mm-hmm. And it really hurts when four of them die because you come to know these characters and you come to know the villagers as well. And that kind of um immersion experience, I think uh it's 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 something that uh, 50s and 60s cinema tried to do here in the States as well, uh, to greater or lesser degrees yeah, with success. Magnificent Seven's almost two and a half it's hours. two and a half hours long, yeah. And uh, I, as far as I know, this is the first film that uh, uh, was around that length and took that great uh, 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 amount of pains to give you that immersive experience. Yeah, and we should yeah. bring up the fact that the bandits, the, the actual bandits attacking the place, they we see them at the very first scene, but then when they come back, that doesn't happen until over two hours into yes. the movie. So yes. it's already over halfway done until we finally get to the battles. Yeah. But it goes by like fast. This is a three-and-a-half-hour movie, but I, it doesn't really feel that length. Yeah, and another thing I like about it, too, is it actually does a good job of showing... Uh, the professionalism, the military professionalism of the group. And it very carefully shows you how they're building up palisades, digging ditches, flooding fields to make sure these guys will not be able to attack the village with impunity or easily. And then I I love the use of maps, right? Mm -hmm. They they keep referring back to the map. And then just this little, this little touch I found much better in uh, seven samurai than magnificent seven the tallying mm-hmm. they keep marking off the circles for each individual bandit and so they know how close they're getting to their goal uh great i mean it, it actually shows you kind of medieval uh, military planning and logistics and training they train the villagers to defend themselves and it's just a great film yeah, it's definitely harder because they don't even have any guns on like in yes. uh, magnificent seven and if i do have one beef with the movie, the Seven Samurai, it's the accuracy of those muskets from the 1500s. I'm like, they're picking them off like they got a yes. Springfield sniper. I'm yes. like, come on, it's not. This, not there's that no accurate. way they're at that accurate. Yes. Well, and then there wasn't there a scene too in Magnificent Seven where, uh, God, the James Coburn picks Coburn him. picks off a guy from 500 yards away with a pistol. Wasn't it a pistol? Yeah. That's not happening either. No. But. Uh, one other thing I did want to bring up is this isn't the first. This wasn't the. Pardon me. It wasn't the only uh, Akira Kurosawa samurai film that was remade in America into a western. Well, technically, okay. One was uh, Yojimbo, which mm-hmm. came out, I believe, in 1960, the same year as Magnificent Seven. Well, not in Hollywood, but in Italy with Sergio Leone and uh, A Fistful of Dollars, the first of the Clint Eastwood Dollars trilogy. Yeah. And what I find interesting is Sturgis, the director of Magnificent Seven, made sure to do all the proper work and, you know, remaking it, getting the res- blessing from Toho Studios and Kurosawa. Kurosawa enjoyed the film. I believe he gave him a samurai sword as nice. far as his appreci- appreciation. <laughs> Leone, I love him. Good, the Bad, and the Ugly is my favorite film. But he didn't do any of that. He just re- shamelessly remade it and didn't bother to... Um, <laughs> so how did Toho respond to this? Oh, Kurosawa sued him, and uh, he said, and like, look, Leone, you made a good movie, but it's my movie, and you didn't do, you do the right credit. So that's, And I, I, I do appreciate Sturge's 
doing the effort because you can see the respect he has for that one. And then also Rashomon, people's people don't know, but that was remade into a Western. I believe it was called like the, the Outrage. Uh-huh. I forget who. There was a bunch of people in it, but most notably uh, William Shatner was in it. It was made in like the late fifties. So really, yes, this isn't this isn't the first time. So it is that. And speaking of um, you know westerns of western we talked about on the show a while ago was Unforgiven. Yeah, that was re- the first was an American western, but then remade like ten years ago into a samurai film, Unforgiven. And uh, actually, Ken Watanabe was the main Clint no, Eastwood character no who kidding. worked with Eastwood on letters from Iwo Jima. So it's like yeah. I said, it's just this constant crossing and going. It's great. Over. It's yeah. great. You know, it, it's it's. I, I, I said before, it's a, a symptom of uh, similar uh, civilizations having similar stages in their histories in terms of founding and uh, uh, founding of the civilizations and and Wild West type periods. But I also think that's a a good uh, what's the word I'm thinking of. A, a good symptom also of the tight ties that have developed between the United States and Japan after World War II. Uh, they're not just simply uh, political ties. They're not just simply military uh, uh, agreements for mutual defense, but they're deep cultural ties. And that's quite remarkable if you think about it. In, in a relatively short period of time, we're 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 stealing <laughs> stealing cultural material or borrowing cultural material from each other and uh just having a whale and of the a time Italians with are it. doing it too we have to bring up leone <laughs> yeah that's right so uh it, it's kind of heartwarming it, it's good to see them. thank you for listening to this week's episode of philosophy at the movies you can find this podcast and more podcasts produced by the Stockdale Center by visiting the Radio Stockdale page at usna.edu. This program is hosted by Radio Stockdale. There you can also listen to their podcasts such as Ethics and the Naval Warrior and The Do-Over. If you like this podcast, you might be interested in my other podcast, Real Sounds, rich episode I dedicate to classic movie soundtracks. That can be found online at soundacinema.podomatic.com. And a quick reminder, our next film we will be discussing is the 1987 film they live directed by john carpenter so until next time i'm alex baker and i'm sean baker sing right on